2: Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The United States military has officially pulled out of Afghanistan. Of course, the withdrawal drew comparisons to the fall of Saigon in 1975, but a superficial historical analog can be as misleading as it is enlightening. Today, we'll be joined by leading thinkers on Vietnam and Afghanistan to see what we can learn about the history of American troop pullouts, What happened to everyday people after Saigon fell? What international forces aided and constrained Vietnam's recovery? And what conditions are unique to each country? That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. The shock of the Taliban's run to Kabul has mostly worn off. The collapse of the American-backed Afghan government and the triumph of the very same group of people who were in power when the U.S. arrived 20 years ago is complete. But if this story in the United States now becomes one of political recriminations and desperate passing of the buck, for the people in Afghanistan, life simply must go on. And government must be formed, food grown, electricity distributed. The fall of Kabul drew comparisons to the fall of Saigon, but few have pressed hard on the analogy to ask about what happened in Vietnam after that day. Who left? Who stayed? And in the decades afterward, how did Vietnam become a stable country with, by some measures, one of the top 25 economies in the world? Seeding that a facile comparison is silly, this history still feels vital alongside other U.S. withdrawals like the one in Iraq in the early 2010s. To get started learning, I want to welcome Long Bui. He's an associate professor in the Department of Global and International Studies at the University of California, Irvine. And he's also the author of the book Returns of the War, South Vietnam and the Price of Refugee Memory. Welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: We're also joined by Tuan Huang, associate professor of great books at Pepperdine and a scholar of the Vietnamese conflict. Welcome.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Long Longbui, wh- when you heard the comparisons between the fall of Kabul and Saigon, wh- what was your immediate reaction?
3: My first immediate reaction was both a type of sublime weirdness or cognitive mm-hmm. dissonance because I know the comparisons, and yet I know every war is special and different at the same time. Mm-hmm. So comparisons are it's like apples and oranges, but they're very similar fruit. And so I found it very strange, but oddly striking at the same time.
2: Yeah. Tom Wong, did you have the same uh, impression or were you thinking like, oh, no, please don't do this?
4: <laughs> uh, in a way, yes. Um, definitely there was a great deal of sorrow and sadness, you know, having um, I actually I myself was a boy and I was in Saigon on the, uh, you know, the day uh, of the fall of Saigon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, there was a sense of, oh, here we go again. Um, but you know, having uh, uh, been very aware of what happened afterward, um, I think there was a great deal of sorrow accompanying uh, the news as well.
2: What what did happen afterwards to your to your family as well as in you know both South and North Vietnam?
4: Uh, some of them, my parents, uh, both of them, uh, migrated you know south from Northern Vietnam in 1954, and it was pretty common um uh, you know of many many uh families that i myself uh knew and grew up with in vietnam uh and so i i suppose you know um uh that they felt uh deja vu you know mm. about uh, evacuation you know my, my own family we did not leave in 1975 we um, left a few years later among the, the wave you know of the boat people in the early mm-hmm. 80s but certainly uh, right in 1975 in on on uh, April thirtieth and, and and you know the, the date the week before uh, there was a, a great deal of chaos um, you know um, the, uh, there was a great deal i think of uh, fear obviously of what you know the uh, communist government may do to to you know to those who were especially associated to the South Vietnamese government or military uh, there was a great deal of uh, chaos also in the sense that many families were separated, you know, during mm-hmm. uh, the last couple of weeks of uh, uh, April of 75. And then, you know, afterwards as well. And I, some families um, would take a long time, months, even years, you know, before they heard the news mm-hmm. you know, about other people.
2: Mm-hmm. And Long Pui, what about what happens, you know, inside Vietnam as it tries to sort of form a, a cohesive government that, that encompasses the entire country?
3: Well, it takes a lot because you have to not basically try to punish your former enemies who are basically your call ethnic kin. Um, and that's what happened in Vietnam. There was re-education camps for former soldiers affiliated with South Vietnam. And we see that the Taliban has a different uh, take on the the, the current uh, Afghani government and their officials. So you see retaliation. You start to try to do economic mobilization in, in Vietnam. They try to do these collective economic initiatives that were disastrous often because they involve urban people trying to do rural farming, which mm-hmm. didn't work. And so we don't know what Afghanistan is going to do in terms of rebuilding the economy, but we just know that Vietnam had to rebuild under U.S. sanctions, which didn't allow it to trade so freely, or even join the United Nations. So this is what Talib- the, the Taliban, um, Afghanistan under Taliban will experience uh, under economic sanctions and also um, non-diplomatic relations. So
2: it's it's going to be a lot of parallels between the two. Hmm. And Chuan Wang, the one of the complex things about these conflicts, taking Vietnam specifically in this case, is that there are other great powers at play. It's, it's, you know, the headliners are, you know, the country, the United States, but there are other powers, you know, China, Russia, Japan in the region that that all have their own interests. And how did they shape what happened post-Follow Saigon in Vietnam?
4: Mm, yes, that is a great question. Um I would uh, look at it this way. Uh, Yes, uh, the Vietnam War, uh, you know, was uh, a conflict among Vietnamese. We need to keep that in mind, right? Just as in, you know, um, uh, many respects, right? In in most respects, one could even say, uh, perhaps, you know, that the Afghan conflict, you know, could be uh, maybe uh, a conflict among Afghans, you know, and that is probably something. That historians will have to find out more, Um, but yes, great power certainly—you know—the presence of of great powers, um, you know, in the case of the Vietnam War, was certain, was was a clear reality. We we need to remember, right, that the Vietnam War occurred uh, in the context of the Cold War, at least to Americans, Um, Mm -hmm. and so the U.S. was uh, invested in South Vietnam. Uh, you know, heavily, uh, just as uh, the northern Vietnamese government, right, and military received uh, crucial support, um, you know, especially from uh, uh, the Re- the People's Republic of China for, uh, you know, for and then later on from the Soviet Union. Um, by uh, one complication, you know, I would like to add, one complication about the Vietnam War is that by the time that the war was over, um, uh, the, 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 the communist Vietnamese government, um, you know, was having, experiencing uh, a good deal of problems with uh, China, uh, you know, and it was leaning towards the Soviet Union uh, more and more increasingly. And that led, you know, to what we usually call the third Indochina war, you know, between uh, a, a brief war between uh, unified Vietnam and China. Uh, so that is a bit of uh, a longer explanation uh, about the complication of, you know, of, of, of um, global powers. But yes, to, to answer your question, definitely no question that great powers, you know, were um, uh, crucial um, you know, in, in the conflict.
2: We're talking about the future of Afghanistan by looking back at what's happened through history when American interventions end. We're talking specifically right now about Vietnam with Long Bui, an associate professor at the Department of Global and International Studies at UC Irvine, and the author of the book Returns of War, South Vietnam and the Price of Refugee Memory, as well as Tuan Wang, an associate professor at Pepperdine and a scholar of the Vietnam conflict. Long Bui, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is the way that the the outflux of refugees affected Vietnam internally. We're talking you know, hundreds of thousands of people over time. Did that destabilize what was happening inside Vietnam? Most definitely.
3: I mean, you're talking about people who might, some people can call it like a brain drain of professionals and those who were once considered part of the capitalist classes in uh, South Vietnam. And so you left with that. And then, the, you know, the, the communists also persecuted the ethnic Chinese, many of them whom were entrepreneurs. So when they left in the late 70s, part of the both people exodus, you were losing a lot of people um, who actually had the finances and wherewithal to build the economy. And, you know, Little Saigon built in Westminster, which is the place where the largest number of Vietnamese are outside of Vietnam and the largest in United States. It was built by a lot of ethnic Vietnamese, ethnic Chinese Vietnamese. So you, you you it kind of destabilized a bit, but the government itself was destabilizing because it was doing such uh, drastic changes in a short amount of time. It didn't uh, take into consideration people's skills and their backgrounds, per se, because it was all about
2: um, reunification under a communist regime. Yeah. And John Wayne, the then you have a diasporic people who have now been spread... Into many places across the U.S. and and around the world, how does that end up changing again what happens on the ground in Vietnam as it develops into the you know late 20th century and and today?
4: Uh, yes, that is a great another great question because you know because right uh, we are aware of the large diasporic presence in the in the U.S. and many other countries. Um, you know, as a historian, I, I would go back a little bit to trace right the. Um, the, the history of the diaspora, and you know, and before getting to the present, um, I would say that um, it is a complex diaspora, uh, you know, because we need to remember that even though uh, the majority of um, Vietnamese in the US, uh, you know, uh, came from uh, southern Vietnam, uh, you know, or, or, you know, have then, uh, or, 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 you know, uh, for the t- second generation, you know, who, who were born of parents who who came from southern Vietnam, right, and often had some uh, association, uh, culturally speaking, politically speaking, whatnot, with, with, uh, you know, with South Vietnam. Um, There were also actually a lot of uh, Vietnamese who... Uh, identify with, uh, you know, northern Vietnam as well. You know, those who uh, who went to Eastern European countries hmm. during the Cold War, for example, to study or to work and so on. So, so I just want to point that out because yeah. you know it's often forgotten. You know, but but uh, 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 but um, uh, you know, for those who fled South Vietnam, you know, uh, in 1975 and then thereafter, um, uh, I would say that one important thing you know that uh, we need to remember is that. They actually, during the 1980s and uh, in the 1990s, they uh, sent a great deal of remittance, uh, remittances you know, uh, uh, back to uh, their family and fr- family members and friends in, in, in Vietnam. Uh, and that, um, I think, um, you know, uh, gave a- Really
2: changed the picture. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just to point out something that, uh, you know, Professor Bowie mentioned earlier, right? Oh, I need
2: to I need to cut you off because we have to go to the break, but we will be back. We're talking about the future of Afghanistan by looking at what's happened through history when American interventions end. When we return, we'll also talk with experts on Afghanistan in the Middle East. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum.
5: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of Afghanistan by looking at what's happened through history when American interventions end. We've been talking with Long Bui, an associate professor at the Department of Global and International Studies at UC Irvine, and Tuan Wang, an associate professor at Pepperdine and a scholar of the Vietnamese conflict. We're now going to add in some experts on Afghanistan and the Middle East. And we also want to hear from you. What are your questions or comments about the future of the nation and how history can inform us? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at KQED org. Uh, Joining us now are Bob Cruz, a professor of history and one of the editors of the the Journal of Afghanistan Studies. Uh, He's a professor at Stanford University. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. We also have Trita Parsi, co-founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. His books include Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the triumphs of diplomacy, and he's the former president of the National Iranian American Council. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Trita, I want to start with you, and I want to talk about another uh, American withdrawal, uh, which a lot of people have been drawing parallels to, uh, and that's Iraq, which we sort of have never fully withdrawn from, but we withdrew a lot of troops uh, in the early 2010s. Can you tell us a little bit about how you see that withdrawal?
0: Well, um, clearly, uh, a withdrawal did not have the same type of images as we saw at the airport in Kabul, but one that at the end of the day falls into the same uh, geostrategic necessity. We, there's a key element of this whole episode that seems to largely have escaped the public Discourse, which is, we have now had four presidents in a row who have recognized and promised during their campaigns that they're gonna bring the troops home. And increasingly, those uh, promises have ended up not just being promises, but something that they felt they absolutely needed to deliver on because there would be a significant political price if they did it. And this is part of the reason why Obama withdrew from Iraq. He had promised to take the troops home. He had promised to stop these what he called stupid wars. He had the intention of pulling out of Afghanistan and, as well, but instead ended up um, ordering a surge in Afghanistan, which uh, the record now shows that back at the time, uh, President, Vice President Biden was opposed to, or at least skeptical of. Um, but I think You know, we escaped those images, but then of course there was this return of ISIS, and there's a narrative that claims that had there not been that withdrawal from uh, uh, Iraq, Mm -hmm. ISIS would not have emerged. I I don't buy into that at all, frankly. Uh, What created ISIS was not the withdrawal of the United States from Iraq, it was the invasion of Iraq by the United States, and particularly the fact that the United States at the time put a very large number of Iraqis into prisons in which you had this mixture of Iraqi, former Iraqi intelligence service people, uh, a lot of religious fanatics, and a very large number of completely innocent people who were radicalized in those camps. Hmm. That is the emergence of ISIS, something that would not have happened had we not uh, intervened in Iraq. Um, And even if the United States had not pulled out of Iraq in 2010, there's a very significant likelihood that ISIS in some way should perform form, would have emerged anyways because of the building blocks of the organization was already put into place by the occupation itself.
2: Trita Parsi, earlier when we were talking about Vietnam, we saw the complexity of the other powers in the region, you know, kind of pressing on this, these conflicts. Right now and and looking you know across the region you know Iraq Iran Afghanistan how do you read that that power map of who's really exerting uh pressure supporting the Taliban uh and, and, and in any direction you know either helping the Taliban to gain power um or sort of restraining the the Taliban um from from you know dominating the society sure.
0: I think a key difference between what's happening in Afghanistan uh, and what happened in Vietnam is that, as your previous guest noted, this was part of the Cold War, which meant that we lived back then in a bipolar uh, structure of the world, and uh, almost everything had to adjust to that reality. That is not the world of today. It's a multipolar world. The United States is not the same type of a superpower it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, And and as a result, the picture is far more complex. It gives far greater maneuverability to smaller actors. Um, And uh, in in the case of Afghanistan, you have a situation in which interventions by neighboring states, Pakistan, Iran, Russia, uh, funding coming in from the Emirates and Saudi Arabia has been a big part of what has contributed to the mess in Afghanistan right now. Uh, What you do have right now in uh, terms of who is supporting the Taliban, I think we have to recognize that there's a lot of countries that were very much opposed to the Taliban who have come to the conclusion that after 20 years of American warfare that did not succeed in defeating the uh, the Taliban, uh, even though they themselves would strongly prefer not having to deal with the Taliban, they have little choice but to adjust to that reality and be pragmatic. The Iranians, for instance, have consistently been Uh, opposing the Taliban. They were the key elements that were funding the Northern Alliance before the United States invaded Afghanistan, but are now uh, on talking terms with the Taliban. It is still an uneasy relationship, but uh, they recognize that they're going to have to deal with the reality of Afghanistan being under Taliban rule rather than seeking to Um, uh, overthrow them, because that is not likely to be particularly successful. Russia is probably in somewhat of a similar situation. Russia, too, was a major supporter of the Northern Alliance, uh, been opposed to the Taliban, but today uh, is finding itself in in a different position. Um, And you have also, of course, the Chinese involvement. Again, not an ally of Taliban, but not recognizing the Taliban right now would Lead to a tremendous amount of headaches for these states because they are bordering Afghanistan. So they have um, uh, they don't have the luxury of not being pragmatic in the same manner that the United States may have that luxury, mindful of the fact that the United States is thousands of miles away. Yeah,
2: Bob Cruz, uh, professor of history at Stanford. I mean, you've devoted your whole career to setting Afghanistan, and there's actually a, a different kind of withdrawal that we could look at as another historical parallel here, and that would be the the withdrawal. Uh, of the Soviet Union, could you tell us a little bit about that history? Uh, I think you know some people maybe know the broad strokes that the U.S. was supporting uh, opponent insurgents, the Mujahideen, inside Afghanistan. But can you can you help us kind of get a little more texture to that, and also roll the tape forward for us
6: uh, in in thinking about what that withdrawal ultimately did in Afghanistan? Great, thank you. That's a very important question. At first, I might begin the answer by. Um, rephrasing Trita Parsi's important observation that really the original sin was the American intervention in Afghanistan in 2001, um, and the Soviet intervention in 1979 played a, a very similar role in, in creating chaos. And if we think of the the legacy of Cold War interventions, uh, almost in every case, we know this intimately from Central America, closer to home, of course, that Cold War interventions tended to fuel civil wars that long outlived you know, the departure of the superpower, and that have continued really uh, to form a legacy for the present. So another important framework to consider is, you know, that the the Soviet intervention, like the American intervention, bears much in common with earlier colonial interventions. So we can Mm -hmm. frame both as simultaneously a kind of colonial war, and then a kind of Cold War intervention, which again, fueled chaos and intense suffering for, for millions of people who were um, you had no no real stake in the battle um, waged from Moscow and and Washington, but where it's primary victims. But to answer your question more directly, I think what was striking is that though we may think of these frameworks, I think this is probably I, I assume my colleagues um, who spoke about Vietnam would would I would hope you know agree in some ways that that it, the colonial framework is important because it um, it helps us understand you know the gap between the aspirations of a great power and then the re- messy realities on the ground. Um, at the same time, I would note that in the Soviet case, you know, this is where I think my, the previous speakers were actually honing in on what is unique about Vietnam. And here I would, I would focus on what is unique about Afghanistan because when the Soviets withdrew in 1989, yes, it was part of this broader colonial and Cold War history, but the outcome was not inevitable. In other words, the outcome that we see today was not inevitable, that you know, all withdrawals are not messy, all withdrawals are not fully chaotic. Um, because when the Soviet Union withdrew, when the Red Army crossed the bridge back into mm-hmm. uh, what is now Uzbekistan in 1989, they did so in orderly fashion. They left a government that was able to hold on for three more years. There was not mass chaos. There was no uh, chaotic kind of departure from airports. Um, to be sure, civil war followed, but that followed a different kind of uh, trajectory. So this idea that, you know, all all wars end in, indeed, all, all wars do end in tragedy and all empires tend to leave with some you know, chaotic, Uh, you know, mess behind them, but focusing on 1989 for a moment points to alternatives. I think that may Mm -hmm. be useful for our conversation to think about the ways in which the Biden administration, like the Trump administration before it, did have other options. So I think everything we're seeing unfold is so frustrating and so emotionally, uh, you know, traumatic for so many Afghans to watch because uh, each of them believes, I think, that some aspect of this was unavoidable. There were always uh, policy alternatives, even though most in Washington want to convince us otherwise.
2: Well, let me put your question to Tuan Wang from Pepperdine University about the colonial framework and how you think that both reality of colonial oppression, as well as the sort of narrative that grew out of it around in North Vietnam, how that played into the continuing uh, conflict and and then the peace afterwards.
4: Mm, uh, Yes, Um, it is a complex uh, answer, I would say. But uh, briefly, I would say that you know uh, the colonial experience, uh, among other things, it led to not just one, not just two, you know, uh, visions, if that is the word, right, uh, for a post-colonial colonial Vietnam, among you know, among Vietnamese revolutionaries. But but it, it it led to multiple visions, you know, and so it led to uh, the fact that some. Vietnamese, um, usually young, usually educated, right? They were drawn to uh, communism, uh, and Ho Chi Minh uh, was clearly the the, the the most important example. But there were obviously many others. Uh, but you know, we, but there were. We need to remember too that there were also many uh, non-communist uh, revolutionaries as well before Ho Chi Minh and and after. So I, so I would say uh, one of the legacies of colonialism you know was that it led to to um competition a competition among vietnamese right uh you know some not, some communists and some non-communist on how they would lead uh you know how they would want the country to be uh, in the future uh, and and i uh, you know and i think that is uh, one of the origins of the vietnam conflict as we as we know it yeah
2: truteparty i wanted to give you a chance to respond to both what Bob Cruz said as as well as Tuan Wang. And that has to do with, you know, it it seems like when one of these wars ends, it can bring to a close uh, a certain type of colonial chapter. But in this case, it almost seems to me, and and I'm Really want to know what you think about this. It seems to me that there's actually been a resurgence in kind of neocon thinking in the U.S. as this withdrawal has gone on. Like there, it felt to me like Washington had actually reached an agreement, both the Trumpists as well as sort of the incoming Biden administration, that we should just be be done with these wars uh, in the Middle East. And now I'm not so sure that that same coalition is holding. What do you think?
0: Um, I'm not so sure I agree. I, I think you are right if we think that either the media coverage or the commentary coming out of the think tanks is representative of the United States as a whole.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but when you take a look at what polls show, uh, it's quite clear that there is a significant disconnect between the foreign policy elite uh, perspective on what U.S. foreign policy should be, uh, in, which is supported by large parts of the way that the media is covering these stories and what the American public thinks. I mean, even at the height of you know, some of the worst images coming out of Kabul uh, airport, support for the decision to withdraw was still 60 plus percent. I don't think that it has gone down. I, I suspect it's actually gone up after the terrorist attack and um, um, uh, and the loss of 13 American soldiers, because I think it just further reinforces that there really isn't much of a point to this, particularly when you think of the fact that the retaliation for that terrorist attack ended up killing 10 people from one family, or, or six people from one family that were not terrorists and uh, included several children, including a two-year-old. That right there within the time frame of roughly 72 hours we saw the vicious cycle that has existed in Afghanistan for quite some time, which is that there's a terrorist attack. That terrorist attack is then responded to by U.S. forces, which ends up killing a lot of civilian people. The death of those civilians ends up becoming a major recruiting tool for al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or even ISIS to be able to recruit more people to their ranks because a key driving force of uh, people joining terrorist organizations has been a a desire for vengeance against the United States because of the manner in which the United States through its occupation and military presence have killed innocent Afghans. You had that entire cycle in just 72 hours there and there is no military solution to it. So I I personally think that um, uh, the public's perspective as well as the coalition that does exist in Washington has been in support of this has actually strengthened Uh, I think it's been fascinating to see how the administration has not backed down from uh, the decision or to um, uh, start adopting a different um, uh, rhetoric in regards to this. In fact, they've doubled down on the absolute strategic necessity uh, of withdrawing. But it is quite fascinating that there has been this outcry from many think tanks, from many people in the Washington foreign policy uh, elite, as well as in the media. And I think part of it, frankly, is because they are fearful that withdrawal from Afghanistan is going to be the beginning of a broader American military uh, right sizing throughout the world, particularly in the Middle East, which means that there may be withdrawals from other parts of the Middle East as well, and potentially a reduction of what I view as a very significant over militarization of American foreign policy with 850 plus military bases around the world.
2: Hey, Bob to Cruz, what do you think? That, hold, hold on. You uh,
0: uh, have to, sorry. Oh, yeah.
6: oh, I just want, I just wanted to get Bob Cruz on, on the same topic. Sure. No, thank you. I mean, the tragedy is, I think that we're, you know, we're having this debate um, and, you know, nationally and internationally in Washington about what the U S should do. And I think, you know, what we're often overlooking is how this affects Afghans and of course other countries where, I would agree with the treaty party that, of course, American foreign policy is over-militarized. Um, but the effects, I mean, if, if you look at it through you know, an Afghan perspective for a moment, um, they've endured 20 years of being subject to a kind of experiment in American power. Um, and now the same rulers who are unpopular, you know, who are not voted in, who are not uh, chosen by the overwhelming mass of, of the Afghan public, um, they are now back to um, being subjected to their rule um, in Kabul and elsewhere, and, you know, the Taliban have not changed. They will rule in a similar fashion as they did in the late 1990s. So, yes, I agree that it's, it's important um, to, to critique foreign, foreign policy, um, but I think that it's kind of a false binary that we're considering. Uh, calling this, calling, a you know, a critique of the Biden administration a neocon argument, I think, is, is unfair. I think, you know, Biden created a false, uh, false binary, either, um, you know, withdraw or escalate. And I think that that was disingenuous. There are many options in between, including a number of diplomatic steps that that the Trump administration took to really, I think, as Afghans say, hand the country back over to the Taliban. That's not a pro-war argument. That's simply a reality for Afghans who now, for 20 years, um, you know, are asking, "What was all this for?"
2: We're talking about the future of Afghanistan by looking at what's happened through history when American interventions end. You've just been listening to Bob Cruz, a professor of history at Stanford. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We'll be back with more forum after the break
3: i'm what you might call very good at hide and seek and since we got xfinity we have wi-fi all over the house even in my super secret hiding spots so i can kill time in here by
0: streaming my favorite ha found you how you left to find my tablet on Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the future of Afghanistan, and we're also talking about American imperial power and when our interventions end. We want your questions and comments about the future of Afghanistan. How can history inform us to make better decisions this time around, both here and in the will that the American foreign policy apparatus is going to exert in and around Afghanistan. Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. We want to talk a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the sort of long refugee crisis. Long Bui, assistant professor at the Department of Global International Studies at UC Irvine and also author of Returns of War, South Vietnam and the Price of Refugee Memory. Long Bui, I want to ask you about, you know, in this particular moment, we're seeing the crisis of uh, uh, the beginning of a new refugee wave. But really, these crises go on for a, a very long time. And I was hoping you could give us a little bit of that sweep and what happened in Vietnam after the fall of Saigon, you know, after the helicopters left. How long did it actually take for, for really the refugee crisis to come to an end?
3: Oh, a refugee crisis to come to an end. Well, it's basically the 1990s. You have multiple waves. And, of course, the first people evacuated were those affiliated with the United States. But then you start having all the pe- the economic refugees come later and those who are politically persecuted for their politics or the ethnicity, then United States started to bring in um different acts to bring in the children of uh, service so service personnel who had children with left behind and they left behind in Vietnam. And so there were so many waves and it, it didn't really stop until basically US normalized diplomatic relations with Vietnam in, you know, in the mid-90s. So uh we had multiple waves and so I expect that to see that in Afghanistan as well.
2: Yeah. Bob Cruz, is that what you're expecting too? Like that this process will play out over really decades probably?
6: Unfortunately, I mean, if we go back to the Soviet invasion, I mean, that prompted a a flight of several million people, many of whom still reside in Iran, Pakistan. And of course, many came to California, many of our neighbors here. But I think this really drives home this whole series of of developments, which happened, you know, with such rapidity. I think we're all still in shock, but I think um, this will form a global crisis. I think this will affect all of us. And Afghanistan is far away, and we're having our debates about what the U.S. should and shouldn't do. Those are important. But I think looking at this globally, you know, Europe will be affected. Most people will be confined to the region. But truly, this is a, a global crisis, which is already inflating the numbers of um, a, a broader, you know, global refugee crisis, which really, I think, with climate change and with um, the continued, you know, chaos of this multipolar world that the treaty of was nicely sketching out, I think, you know, each of us um, is going to be affected by the, by the, the inhumane policies of, of all kinds of states that um, you know, the police movement, mobility, and immigration. It's a, all this phenomenon is also, I would argue, is a, a gift for the, the far right, for the fascist right in the United States and in Europe, who will use the figure of the African refugee who is, you know, who is you know, a person of color, who is Muslim. And I fear this will fuel anti-immigration politics across the planet, again, which reinforces the idea that this really will affect all of us. I want to bring in Luke from
2: Katadi right now. Hi, Luke. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. Um, Thanks for giving us a call. I want to make
1: a comment
6: on the uh, guest was saying that Joe Biden hadn't supported the surge. Um, well, my comment would be like he didn't co- um, support it publicly. I mean, privately he said he didn't, but publicly he never said anything. Mm-hmm. But he also was a big proponent of nation building which mm-hmm. got us to the same spot. There seems to be like this, we don't need to point fingers now, but um, the, the parallels to Vietnam also, you're skipping over that. Our government lied to us about mm-hmm. how it was going for um, 20 years in this case.
2: That's an excellent point. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that, Luke. And, and Trude say, I want you to maybe address the, the first part of this, uh, which is, I, I, I think one question that, that comes out of this is, could one have supported nation building without supporting the military intervention?
0: Well, first to what the, the caller said, he is absolutely correct. This is what Biden was saying privately. He was a loyal vice president, so he was not going to go out and criticize the president's decision publicly. Uh, But he's also right to call her in terms of the fact that uh, Biden himself has very much been part of the majority in the Washington uh, foreign policy elite that, uh, you know, voted in favor of the Iraq war and and, uh, believed in in, uh, the ability to be able to transform these countries into images of ourselves. Uh, And in fact, in Iraq, he had a very ambitious program in which he actually suggested dividing the country into three which again, sounds quite colonial at the end of the day. So I I think the caller is quite right in that. When it comes to nation building, um, we obviously have to separate the idea of nation building through the barrel of the gun uh, and foreign occupation and through other forms of development aid and, and help. But what we have done has primarily been through the barrel of the gun and we have been particularly bad at it. Let me just give you one example. When the Soviets uh, prepared themselves to occupy Iran uh, towards the end of the Second World War, they sent in a vanguard. But it wasn't soldiers or counterintelligence people or spies. They actually sent in cultural anthropologists to study the Iranian society, better understand how it worked, where the centers of power was, uh, uh, the political culture, in order to reduce the inevitable uh, complications that come with any occupation. Compare that. To the number of Arabic-speaking people that were part of the folks that the Bush administration sent into Iraq uh, in 2002, 3% of the Americans that went to Iraq even spoke the language. So we, frankly, lack even the interest, the curiosity to learn more about these states in order to be able to have any chance of being able to do a positive contribution when it comes to nation-building. A
2: couple of comments from listeners. One listener writes, I would like to hear specifically some of the other options that were available to the Biden administration. Greg asks, please ask your guests whether they think that the coddled American ruling class is committed to continuing the endless history of American interventions until America fully collapses and fragments internally. And if so, ask them if they have any idea what will be the next American foreign intervention. Will we occupy the South China Sea? Let's just let those sit and bring in Janet from Richmond.
1: Hi, I just have to say I I agree with with the last few comments. I mean, we were there uh, in Iraq for 20 years. How many young soldiers, everyone that they mentioned who died recently, they were under, what, 25 years old? They were children. And so 20 years of being there and the president (laughs) uh, abandoned his own people other countries and other countries and around uh, Iraq, what are they also doing? As Americans, I think we can't just put this on Joe Biden's shoulders. He hasn't been in office very long. This has been going on for over 20 years. So all of the intellectualizing and talking about what Americans should be doing, what are some of the other Middle Eastern countries doing to stabilize that part of the world? And how is it that, as Americans who've been told oftentimes to stop going in and controlling other countries in the Middle East, why is it now a bad thing that we've decided to allow that part of the country to do whatever it's going to do without the military being there? I think we need to... Change the conversation instead of saying, Oh, America has to save every part of the world while we're going to go through a recession. We've got children who are homeless. We've got people, seniors that can't get medical care. When are we going to focus on America doing what we need to do for Americans? But also, wh- why did the president leave his own people? And no one's saying anything about that. No one's saying anything about him stealing millions of dollars and abandoning his own country, and yet now. Everything that's gone wrong is on Joe Biden's shoulders. 100,000 people got out. I think, yes, we need to think about the other people that were left behind and getting them out as well. But 100,000 people got out. Donald Trump set that deadline. No one's saying anything about Donald Trump laying down that gauntlet and saying "As as, as a powerful, powerful source, this is when we're getting out. I think we need to look at this from a different perspective instead of the blame game of saying what Joe Biden did in a few months, what's been going on for 20 years from the countries, their standpoint, and from other countries in the region. What are they going to do as well? And when do American children stop losing their lives on a losing battle? It's a losing battle.
2: Janet, I appreciate your passion about this topic. Thank you so much for the call. And I want to just put that right to, to Bob Cruz, uh, professor of history at Stanford. You know, I mean, we, we have come to this every time we talk about Afghanistan on the show or I've talked with my friends or family. There always comes this point where we end up saying, well, we, we wish this wouldn't have happened. Been, that there must have been some other option that could have preserved some freedom for the people of Kabul, but that didn't involve a bunch of American drones and helicopters and machine guns. What one of our listeners, one of the comments was: What specifically should the U.S. have done? Like what, and, right. and would it have involved continued military intervention? You know,
6: off into the infinite horizon. Right. Sure. Those are very important and very very thoughtful questions, and I and I can try to address also the the recent callers' um, you know, concerns about who we find responsible. I'd say, I mean, this is a 20-year story. Um, and yes, this doesn't all you know, rest on Biden's shoulders. I think it's important to recall that there were always alternatives. So we can start with October of 2001. This was a choice that the Bush administration made to invade Afghanistan. And once the US entered the country, it became responsible in international law uh, and ethically, morally um to come to some resolution um we essentially own the country if you recall the, the colin powell doctrine but the war was not inevitable it was not the only choice available to the bush administration in 2001 right there were options to continue to negotiate with the taliban to try Osama bin laden in december of 2001 there were many choices about what kind of government to form uh, that would rule kabul and rule afghanistan the united, united states chose to bring in A handful of diaspora people that is from the afghan mostly afghan american diaspora and they chose a very highly centralized state its structure it's almost autocratic nature in which all power was funneled up in the office of the president was a major reason why the state collapsed so quickly in the last few weeks um there were alternatives on the table in bonn germany in december 2001. the germans for example proposed a federal system many afghans spoke for a federal system especially those who represented Um, non-majority, you know, minority populations. At every turn, 2002, 2003, 2004, when the United States um, engaged in, I wouldn't call it nation building, I would call it actually a kind of colonial state that was basically a vector for the projection of American power. So all these elections that took place for parliament, for president, those weren't nation building exercises. Those were exercises in control. They were almost all falsified. Um, The United States did not have a democratic vision for Afghanistan. It had a vision of control. It wanted to ensure that its man on the spot was a kind of conduit of American power to pursue uh, first counterterrorism and then counterinsurgency, and essentially to you know dictate what Americans wanted to see on the ground there. All this was critiqued. Numerous scholars and journalists pointed to this. Your earlier caller noted all the lies. The lies have been visible for anyone reading you know, any major newspaper for 20 years. Yes. So this also rests with the American public. I would have to say it's not just a, you know, a single administration's. So then as we here. come
2: to 2021, the option would have been to try to rebuild a different kind of Afghan government. Sure, Maybe I mean, I think, for the US to to put pressure on that government yeah. to to federalize, to change the structure of government and
6: to and to use all the levers of power to do so yeah.
2: before pulling out. Yes,
6: yeah, so the, the Doha deal that the Trump administration signed with the Taliban in February 2020 was, I think you know, we can call it a a surrender deal. It gave the Taliban um, time to prepare for war. It released some 5,000 Taliban fighters and it excluded the Afghan government. In exchange, the United States got nothing. It got a clear path to retreat without being fired upon. But as it was retreating without being fired upon, the Taliban held their part of the deal. Uh, The Taliban redoubled their efforts to assassinate uh, intellectuals, journalists, media figures, including a great number of women. They managed to, um, you know, inflict heavy casualties on Afghan uh, security forces. And the Afghan state was asked, you know, wonder, are we, are we irrelevant now? Um, and indeed many concluded it was. That was the beginning of the kind of psychological mm-hmm. spiral. And then uh, what followed from Doha was, you know, the, the Taliban were welcomed in Moscow. They'd already had ties to Iran and, and very deep ties to Pakistan. They then began meeting with Chinese envoys. And so it began to basically project the image of the Taliban as a state in the waiting. So all this, of course, was visible to, to our Afghan, you know, would-be partners, that the Afghan, you know, state was being abandoned, that Washington, you know, was going to wash its hands and simply wanted a clean withdrawal for domestic political purposes. Yeah. And so that is a key factor in explaining why the Afghan army melted away and why Afghan leaders fled. So all this is indeed a 20-year story, but if we look at really each moment, especially around the times when there were presidential elections, these were fraudulent elections. And so the United States ended up, in e- at each turn, under... All four administrations backing fraudulent leaders and is it any wonder now that many afghans regarded this government as corrupt it was yeah. corrupt in part because the state department always validated those elections at the same time that it was flooding the money with cash that the state couldn't absorb so the story really honestly I think- bob though i feel like this is directing. all making yeah. the point that we should have pulled out i'm sorry
2: I-, I feel like that all just makes the point that we should have pulled out it wasn't like yeah, sure, u.s so foreign it. policy was exactly. going to completely yeah, yeah. change after four administrations well you i mean know?
6: Yeah, there were there were moments. There were moments to do it. There were moments to do it thoughtfully, responsibly, um, not in the manner that we've seen it, you know, take shape in the last few weeks. So to be sure, yeah, this, this is not an argument for staying forever. But if we do look, I mean, some some of my Afghan colleagues say, look, look at Germany, look at South Korea, look at Japan. I, I'm no proponent of American bases around the planet, but one base, Bagram, with some 2,500 people, was able to forestall the events of the last few weeks. When we left Bagram, that opened a gate to Kabul, and now the Taliban are back in charge after 20 years. So these are small things. These are small measures. Yeah. Uh, and there's still quick- a window of time now to, to engage the world diplomatically to try to shape the behavior of the Taliban. Um, sanctions are, are probably not the answer, as treaty Parsi would know better than I because of the Iranian scenario. But I think you know the time, what remains, is um, yeah, a brief window to engage diplomatically. And that was wanna, always a possibility, something that I, the U.S. never pursued.
2: I want to quickly add Hussein from San Francisco into the conversation, just in our last couple of minutes here. Hi, Hussein. Uh,
0: Thank you for, thank you for take, taking my call. My question is that both presidents, um, Joe Biden and also Bush at the beginning, said that we are not in the business of nation building and yet spend about $2 trillion in destroying Afghanistan. Which one would have been, would have been better, to build the nation or to destroy it with that same $2 billion. Just buy 100,000 tractors and 100,000 water pumps, give it to the farmers there. They would build their own
2: nation. Thank you for that comment, Hussein. Really appreciate that. And and on that note, I do actually want to ask Tuan Wang, associate professor at Pepperdine and a scholar of the Vietnam conflict, knowing all that you do about Vietnamese history and the the conflict what's one lesson that we could use that that Americans here should should be thinking about as we go uh into this longer crisis and away from the the c- acute moment
4: mm-hmm. um i you know given where we are um I am hoping that Americans you know would um, that 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 uh, you know their humanitarian impulse you know would prevail over right um Uh, the more anti-immigration perspectives, you know, that have dominated the discourse uh, in recent years. Um, There has always been opposition, actually, more opposition than acceptance of refugees, and we can trace it back to uh, uh, World War II, to the Hungarian Revolution, and so on. Um, So this is not exactly unusual, but we are facing, right, with with, um, uh, momentum uh, in other forms as well. So I'm, I'm just hoping for that.
2: Yeah. We've been talking about the future of Afghanistan by looking at what's happened through history when American interventions end. Thank you to our guests, Long Bui, an associate professor at the University of California, Irvine, Tuan Wong, who you just heard, associate professor at Pepperdine and a scholar of the Vietnam conflict, Bob Cruz, a professor of history at Stanford, Trita Parsi, co founder and executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and thank you to our listeners for your calls and comments. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. And thank you to our producers, Judy Campbell and Tina, for scrambling this morning. Thank you so much.
1: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation.